Hello, and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 373rd show of ROI. On our guest for today's show is Dr. Kristen Cobb Dumay, professor of history at Calvin University, who has joined us today to talk about her book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. The show's theme song is titled Kayla's Theme, and it was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, David Baker with his mask on. <laughs> this is the opening segment of our show, which is called Farouk Dinarin. And today we're going to be talking about the book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, with its author, Kristen DeMay, professor of history at Calvin University. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back. So can you give our listeners a little background on what you mean when you use the term evangelicals? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I am writing about white evangelicals, and that's important to keep in mind because I think that historically and culturally, uh, we need to understand white evangelicalism as a, a relatively distinct tradition a distinct uh, cultural movement. Um, and so some people define evangelical according to a kind of theological rubric. So they um, are Bible-believing Christians who focus on like, conversion, being born again, the authority of the Bible, and activism and things like that. And uh, I mean, that's true uh, about many evangelicals. But um, if you just use a theological rubric, you're talking about global evangelicals, you're talking about many black Protestants would fit that category. Um, historically, to understand what many people mean when they talk about white evangelicals today, um, I'm looking at this historical movement of, you know, from Billy Graham through, uh, you know, kind of Christianity Today, popular evangelicalism, focus on the family, um, and this evangelicalism is a religious movement, but it's also a cultural and political movement, and that's the white evangelicalism that I write about in this book. Okay, um, Kristen, I have to tell you, I, um, while coming back from Minnesota, heard you give an interview on your book, and I was just outside Duluth, and I wanted to pull the bookstore and buy it. I was incredibly, very much so, it's impressed with your premise and, and the arguments that you said, so I'm going to have two questions. Number one, could you tell our listeners kind of where you would say the turning point was uh, with white evangelicals on a national uh, timetable? And I'm guessing it's probably dealing with uh, when communication, when they could really uh, preach the brimstone on a massive level. And the second question was, I saw the cover of your book. If you could have got the picture of Jerry Falwell Jr. with that redhead, would you put that on the cover of the book instead of the one you have now? Oh, my gosh, no. I think that we've all seen more of Jerry Falwell um, <laughs> than we need to. <laughs> no, no, no. But, yes, he, 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 he's helped publicize the book. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, yes, um, your question. first question, then. <laughs> 
So, uh, yeah, the uh, kind of turning point, um, and you're right, it, I, I think I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit and pick a couple that um, I, I really do think it's important to understand evangelicalism today as a consumer kind of um, marketplace. It's a consumer culture, and so you don't necessarily have to attend a church that identifies as evangelical um, to have been deeply influenced by evangelical culture. Um, so if you, you know, back when we had bookstores, shopped at a Christian bookstore, if you listen to Focus on the Family Radio, if you, li- if you watch Christian television, consume Christian media, um, whatever church you attend, or even if you don't regularly attend a church, um, you've been influenced by this culture. And so, um, and that really takes off in the years after World War II, um, when evangelicals themselves come together and say, we need to kind of um, kind of take back the culture, and we want to have more influence, we want to spread into all the corners of this nation, and they, they do that through um, organizations, institutions, and uh, through the media, and um, through Christian bookstores, frankly, they, they start planting Christian bookstores, the Christian Bookstore Association, across the country. And then the products that line the shelves are, are, are particular products, not denominationally specific, but ones that focus a lot on, on things kind of that all Christians or all evangelicals can kind of agree on. Um, so um, family values evangelicalism comes through loud and clear on the shelves of Christian bookstores, emphasis on Christian living. So that's important to understand where we are today. But I would also point to Vietnam as another really critical kind of turning point uh, and critical for evangelical identity, because it's during the 60s and the 70s that evangelicals really come together as a partisan political movement, and they're, they're you know, kind of building the religious right at that point. And it's at that point also that we see them embrace um, militarism, and embrace kind of traditional um, militant views of masculinity, and they're doing so over against what they see happening in the rest of American culture, against feminism and against the anti-war movement. And up until that time, um, you know, certainly earlier in the century, you'd have liberal Protestants um, being kind of pro-military, pro-militarism, some conservative Protestants actually very hesitant to support the military and, and support uh, war and foreign policy and so on. And so all of this really comes together in the 1960s and the 1970s with Vietnam as the backdrop, and evangelicals see the military as critical to protecting what they understand as Christian America against all the evil forces of communism. And, and that really is central to evangelical identity central to their ideas of masculinity, and they carry that with them in politics and their cultural values really up to the present day. Okay. So, Kristen, my, my question then would be that in, in terms of, of the way religion works, this seems pretty uh, unique or unusual to me. Most religions have a tendency to be very intentionally, very protectively denominational. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, it's, it seems to me amazing that you could get a number of different denominations to sort of all kind of pull in, in the same direction. Um, so what I'm wondering is, are there particular individuals who are leaders in this, who are serving as coordinators or bridgers, you know, to, to make this happen? Or was this truly kind of a spontaneous, organic process? 
Uh, this is, I mean, this was planned. It's also kind of the nature of evangelicalism itself and, you know, kind of revivalism and, and these popular revivals can spread, you know, wherever the revivalist goes and, and you know, uh, it's throughout different denominations and grab some people and not others. And so historically, evangelicalism has not ever really been bounded by um, uh, uh, denominations in this country. And that's even more so the case, I think, in the 20th century when you do have mass media also kind of promoting this evangelical revivalism across um, across the nation and across denominations. But um, yes, individuals are important, and nobody was more critical to this than Billy Graham. In fact, one prominent historian once quipped that, you know, instead of trying to define an evangelical in kind of mid-century America, it's basically anybody who liked Billy Graham counts as an evangelical, and there's a lot of truth to that. Okay. Well, can I go back to the question? When you were describing it, in the 60s and 70s, I'm 54 years old, and my mom and family was very much wanting ERA to get ERA to get through. And uh, I remember my as a kid, the first real vision, um, not vision, but seeing them on television uh, trying to stop that. And mm-hmm. and then the 80s came along, and I was in college, high school and college, and it seemed to me that that was the decade that the um, the noted television evangelicals started to eat their own young because they had these scandals, which you talked about before, whether it was James Baker or Jimmy Swagger or Jimmy Swagger again. And even though they were trying to push the product, they had no problem slitting the other preacher's throats for the cash cow. Now, that is how I interpret the 80s. Am I right or am I off base? Oh, you're right. Yeah, there's so much drama with the televangelist sex scandals in the 80s. And yes, um, they they are sabotaging each other uh, during this time. And I, I write about that in the book. And I mean, the stories are just uh, are, are absurd. Uh, but what what's really interesting in terms of the, the larger story I tell, which is really a history of evangelical masculinity and militarism, is that um, by the early 80s, there was this sense that um, evangelicals needed heroes, like they needed macho heroes, because feminists had kind of emasculated American culture. We saw we couldn't even win on the battlefields of Vietnam. And um, there was this idea that we needed to return to a rugged, like heroic masculinity. And this kind of gets out the title too. you know, John Wayne was a, a, a great model for, for what they they thought they they needed to preserve and revive. Um, and so they decided that um, contemporary culture was really kind of stripping away our heroes, um, modern sitcoms. I mean, it was just there were no masculine heroes to be found. So they thought that, OK, what we need is um, Chris, the Christian media to provide us with our heroes. And lo and behold, what happens next? Sex scandal after sex scandal. And so that doesn't work out very well for them. And so instead, they find a new source of heroism, and they find a new hero, and that hero is Oliver North. And um, it's kind of crazy because when the rest of the country, he's on trial, and he's, you know, has he, has he betrayed his country? And, and But evangelicals see Ollie North as this righteous hero, um, and he, he has this military honor, as they define it, and he, he's not afraid to do what needs to be done, even if it means skirting the law. And Reagan calls him a hero, and 
Falwell, call, Falwell Sr. calls him an, a hero. He's invited to the Southern Baptist Convention, and they say that, okay, so our own heroes kind of failed us, but we can find the heroism we need in the American military. And and this, this just perpetuates and, and jumpstarts this militarization of American evangelicalism. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show, ROI. Um, this is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. KALA 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues. And the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio station where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. And then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of the show, which is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Kristen Cole-Dumay, professor of history at Calvin University, and we'll be talking about her book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Our history buffs for today's show is Brett Bernard and Terry Toppler. Brett, as our expert in things religious, um, and since you're married a pastor, uh, you get the first question. So you talked in the last segment about some of the sex scandals in the televangelist age. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. We have several scandals for evangelical heroes right now. Has there been any change in how evangelical culture has responded to them? Well, it kind of depends um, <laughs> who's the subject of the uh, sex scandal. And certainly if that person is in the White House, obviously it makes a big difference. Um, so, I, I, taking a step back, though, I would say that it's a little tricky when you get to um, uh, talk about evangelical sex scandals, uh, because it kind of depends if they are considered an insider or, um, you know, an outsider. So, you know, Bill Clinton, there was um, a lot of condemnation and um, a lot of, you know, not much grace or forgiveness extended in that direction um, to some of their own. Um, there's actually a lot of forgiveness uh, offered, second chances, um, excuses. And what I found looking back um, in uh, uh, evangelical writings dating back to the 60s um, up to the present is I mean, they write a lot about sex. They write a lot about sexuality, how to be a good wife, how to be a good husband. And, and they are not at all afraid of talking about, about sex. Um, but one of the themes that comes up again and again is how men... Um, because of all their testosterone, have very high sexual needs, and they have a very hard time controlling themselves. That's just the way God made them. Women, on the other hand, have this burden of protecting purity, of protecting, because we can't leave that to men. And so they have to be modest, and when they're married, they have to fulfill all of their husband's sexual needs. 
And this is a motif that just runs through evangelical sex advice literature. And again, there are reams of, of this sort of thing um, from decade to decade. And so what you see happening around these sex scandals is it's very easy to blame the woman. Maybe the woman's, you know, seduced the, the man because of what she was wearing. Even little girls are accused of this. Um, or, you know, maybe the man's wife wasn't fulfilling all of his needs and he was kind of forced to look elsewhere. And this is a motif that we see over and over again. And we see this within evangelical organizations, within evangelical churches. And then we also kind of see this reflected, I think, more recently in um, you know, more um, sex and politics with people like Brett Kavanaugh or um, Roy Moore or Donald Trump. Okay, Terry. Yes, Dr. Dumay, I was interested in your comparison of evangelicals looking at masculinity and militarism. So my question has to do with militarism and the teachings of Jesus. So they seem to be polar opposites to me. Um, So I want to know, how do they resolve this duality? Uh, Is the New Testament no longer relevant in their faith? I don't understand. (laughs) <laughs> that is, yeah, such a good question, and this really gets to the um, the subtitle, um, how they corrupted a faith, um, because what what they'll actually do is one of the ways that they kind of resolve this tension is that they they um, turn the Jesus of the Gospels into this militant warrior Christ. Uh, so he's you know wielding a sword in hand, and they they explicitly reject teachings like turn the other cheek. Um, and they very explicitly say, you, you can't be a real man and turn the other cheek. Don't teach your boys to do that. Uh, you know, teachings of love your neighbor, love your enemies, just really disappear. And instead, it's this, this kind of militant faith that you need to protect righteousness. You need to defend your family. You need to defend Christian America. So they're really changing the Jesus of the Gospels. They're neglecting many of the teachings of the New Testament. And instead, you know, if they look at all um, to Jesus of the Bible, it's going to be the turning the tables in the temple, and then also the book of Revelation, which is filled with swords and blood and slaying of enemies, and that's where they'll go instead. Okay, Kristen, I'd kind of like to follow that up, because as I was reading your book, the thought that went through my mind, and and I grew up in a uh, white evangelical uh, church, and you so got thrown out of a white I did, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it was a little bit like old home week as I'm reading all of yeah. these things because I'm old enough. I'm, you know, older than John. And and uh, so I, I really was part of that 60s and 70s sort of, you know, revolution or transformation. Um, so it seems to me that, that what they've done is they've taken Jesus and turned him into the Jewish Messiah who was supposed to be a a war leader that was going to bring uh, Israel back to existence and so forth. And and my question is are there are there other ways that white evangelicals uh thoughts faith whatever you want to call it um have sort of turned the tables on traditional what we would consider to be more traditional forms of Christianity? Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, another example is uh, this, you know, really strong emphasis on patriarchal authority that goes hand in hand with this kind of militant masculinity. 
Um, and, and you see this in theological circles, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, for example, and where this is um, a, a, a very kind of strict patriarchal authority structure becomes uh, a kind of non-negotiable, like a marker of Orthodox Christianity. So anybody who crosses the line on that is is on the outside. Um, now you could argue that you know there's there's a tradition of patriarchal authority within historical Christianity, um, but the extent to which they take things is is really quite remarkable. So much so that in recent years, some of the folks who are um, uh, kind of promoting this, you know, non-negotiable patriarchy, a harsh patriarchy, um, have gone so far as to kind of rework understandings of the Christian Trinity, uh, you know, the idea of three and one, um, to kind of subordinate um, uh, to the Father and subordinate the Son to the Father to model the permanent subordination of women to men in um in um, uh, in families and in society, and so like these historic Christian teachings are actually um, being thrown aside. You know, go back centuries, millennia, in order to reassert a particular contemporary understanding of gendered authority, and um, and, and so I think that's another. And th- this is a, a, a topic that's been debated within conservative circles because conservatives themselves are saying, wait a minute, this is going a step too far. But you'll have a lot of defenders who think that this is actually, you know, um, what they understand to be, um, again, a non-negotiable of the gospel message, as they put it. I have a quick question, then I'll let Terry and uh, Brett finish with the last one. Where does it say in either the Old Testament or the New Testament about pool boys? I was just curious. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, hypocrisy is, is, is something that, that we need to talk about at some, at some point, I suppose. You know, that this, these are moral values conservatives, right? Family values folks. And, and yet... Here we have Jerry Falwell Jr. and the pool boy, and we've got, you know, Donald Trump, and, and again, the list goes on. Uh, what I suggest, though, is, yes, on a certain level, there is a hypocrisy here. If you, if you want to, you know, brand yourself as the moral majority, um, you know, you have to answer for that. However, if we look at family values, um, evangelicalism, and really take a close look, uh, historically we see that at the heart of that has always been this kind of assertion of patriarchal authority uh, that's at the heart of family values and that gets defined in this in this increasingly militant way and it carries a lot of this baggage about sexuality about female submission about you know rugged aggressive um, masculinity um, that may be violent at times but that's just the way god made men so if you understand that that's always been a part of quote-unquote family values and that that's you know, their more morality is defined according to that, then suddenly we're not looking at this, you know, gross hypocrisy as much as we're looking at some continuity and that maybe we didn't actually understand what these values actually are that are, are at the heart of white evangelicalism. Okay. Brett. So that brings up an example, and I believe you talk about them in your book, Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. So, there would be someone who explicitly is is teaching this hyper masculinized um, version of Christianity who throws out the book on what most people would 
see as appropriate behavior for a pastor in terms of language that he uses and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. How does that tie into sort of this conflicted identity where they're both pro-life when it comes to abortion, but are also pro-death penalty and more likely to own firearms? How does that Mm -hmm. all work out? Yeah, Driscoll is just, you know, this this prime example in the you know, late 1990s, early 2000s of, of this a kind of toxic masculinity on steroids, misogynistic, um, you know, very militaristic. Um, and he's just this great model in his own church and in his teachings of, of stoking fear in the hearts of his followers um, and making them afraid of all of these imagined threats. And then he comes in and promises protection. And, and this was a motif that I saw repeated over and over again. And then in his craft style, his misogyny is just kind of evidence of his godly manhood because that, you know, godly manhood has been defined in such kind of aggressive, militant ways and, you know, anti-feminism, anti-political um, correctness, anti-liberal, all of these things. And this is kind of what you end up with. Um, so how does this gel with kind of pro-life? Uh, I think quite easily in many ways because uh, it's a woman's role in this kind of arrangement to be nurturing, to be a mother, to be a wife, to be submissive, subservient, and to really um, embrace her feminine role. Again, motherhood is a part of that. Pleasing her husband is a part of that. Um, and being gentle, I mean, that, that belongs to a woman. Now, men, you know, there's huge emphasis on gender difference. Men, masculinity is kind of seen as the opposite of femininity. So whereas that's all appropriate for a woman and she needs to be a mother, um, a man is made to be aggressive and he needs to defend the family, defend the faith, and do this in, in really aggressive ways. And so, um, so, yes, firearms are important. It helps a man protect his family, protect his nation. Um, and, and they write a lot about guns as kind of a rite of passage for young boys to become, you know, authentic men. They need to have toy guns and then they need to have real guns. And so this all actually kind of fits together if you understand the gender distinctions, the gendered roles, and what role a, a woman is to play and then what role the ma- masculine protector is to play. All right. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, Kristen, why do you think knowing about the evangelical movement, particularly the white evangelical movement, is relevant in today's world? Oh, it is so incredibly relevant. If you look at what's happening right now, look at white evangelical stalwart support for President Trump at the moment, but not just that. Look at their support for law and order. Look at their support for law enforcement, for, you know, border control, for um, aggressive foreign policy, like across the board. All of this makes sense within this framework of embracing this militant, rugged, aggressive manhood, masculine protector of, of Christianity and Christian America. Donald Trump is their strong man, and all of these pieces fall into place. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes our 373rd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Kristen Cobb-Dumay, professor of history at Calvin University, who talked with us today about her book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Terry Toplin. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KLA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Poso Pulanawa, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.